Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. On today's episode, we talked to author Eva Marie Everson. She's the author of two Tyndale books, Five Brides and The One True Love of Alice Ann. Yes, and Eva was charming. She told us about her writing process, about research, about why she writes historical novels. And she also shared a little bit more about her platform. She has a company called Word Weavers International, where she encourages writers of all stages to be better at their craft. So we hope you're encouraged. Please visit Tyndale.com for copies of both books. Eva Marie, we're so thankful to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd love to know, first off, how you became a writer. You're a prolific writer. You have a lot of experience, and your work is also pouring into other writers. So tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I started telling stories to myself as far back as I can remember, you know, three, four, five years old. Um, I was creating stories in our backyard, my family home backyard, and I would create them and I would act them out and I would get the neighborhood kids involved and, and we'd put on shows and things like that. And um, in seventh grade, I was asked by the teacher, you know, she was going around the room, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And most of the girls in my class, you know, a teacher, a nurse, a stewardess, that was a big thing back then. I want to be a mommy. You know, it was a small southern town back in the late 60s. And um, I don't want to say not a lot of, I don't know, <laughs> ideas, <laughs> but we were just kind of, we just, we were. And, you know, so mothers grew up to, I mean, young girls grew up to be mothers, just like their mothers. And maybe some of them were secretaries and maybe some of them were nurses and that kind of thing. Um, we actually had a female doctor in our hometown. So that was very unusual. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and when I say that, I mean a doctor who was a girl. <laughs> so, and, and I mean, really seriously, um, not common in, in that, in that era or in that area. Um, so there was a little bit of progression, but I said I wanted to be a writer and my teacher looked at me and she said, well, you can't do that. Mm. And I'll, I, you know, it, it settled in with me. And so my writing became a very private thing. Um, I, I went on to become a nurse. I, you know, worked in the medical profession for uh, years and then I became ill and had to stop working for a while and I was reading a lot to you know pass the time and I would get to the end of the book and I would think I could have written that I could have written that you know but it's kind of like if only I believed I was a writer mm. and then this opportunity came up for me to write for a children's ministry I just walked through the door mm. and then another opportunity opened itself up and I walked through that door and the next thing I knew I was a published author wow. <laughs> and here we are today <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. It really is. It goes to show, too, how impressionable uh, mm -hmm. we are at, at young ages. And really, I'm sure, you know, when you got those opportunities, how important it was for people to believe in you so that you yeah. kind of started to believe in yourself and said, I actually, I'm gifted. I can do this. I, yeah, exactly. And and 
<laughs> and the funny thing is, is it was like no holds barred. You know, it was I, it, it it was incredible how quickly it all happened for me. And I think if it hadn't, I would have just held back. But um, being very blessed that God said, "All right, girlfriend, we're we're about to swing some doors open, and you just got to trust me and go through them." And I, I cannot tell you how many times a day, <laughs> even a day, I say to the Lord, "What are you doing?" You know, I mean, you want me to do what? And yet he does. And the opportunity is there. And I have the tools at my disposal. And the next thing I know, we're doing them. Mm -hmm. So just blessed. Very blessed. And you're a faithful yeah. woman. It's inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what it was like when you were writing your first book? And are you able to look back and see how you've changed over the years as a writer? Well, my first book came about uh, in 1997. I, like I said, I was writing for this children's ministry. I'd been working with them for, you know, uh, maybe just a few months at that point. Um, my oldest, I mean, I'm sorry, my youngest was homeschooled. Um, and so, you know, she was a senior that year and was pretty much on her own. You know, my, my job was getting her up in the morning and getting it done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um uh, she would, you know, we get her started and then I would take a walk and I was walking one day. It was in March of 1997. And as I was walking, I, this idea came to my mind as they often do. And I walked four miles and I came home and I, I, instead of taking a shower, as I usually did, I went straight to the computer and I just started hammering out my ideas. I knew nothing about writing a novel. When I realized I knew nothing about writing a novel, but yet this was a novel, I began to teach myself through various methods, mostly by dissecting movies and TV shows. And then I got a book, um, Writing the Blockbuster Novel by Albert Zuckerman. I think that was his name or is his name. And I, I dissected that and I just kept working and working. And I spent a whole year working on that novel. Uh, it was the fourth book published. It was my first novel published, but it was the fourth book published. And uh, of course it, you know, I learned all about editing uh, through that and then self editing and trusting content editors. Um, but you know what I wish I could go back to is, uh, you know, I wasn't writing for a contract. I was writing for pleasure. I was writing because I had a story to tell. And there are times when I wish that I could just grab hold of that moment again. And, um, you know, not think in terms of, okay, I've got X number of days or X number of months or X number of weeks before I have to turn this in. And how many words did you write today? Instead, it's just the pleasure of writing the story, of telling the story. Mm -hmm. um, that was pretty joyful. Mm -hmm. That was pretty joyful. I miss that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I say that, you know, the, the newer writers who I coach or am part of their, their journey because of my work with Word Weavers International and, and writers conferences and things like that. I say, don't take this for granted and don't rush it mm -hmm. because your time will come and you will wish you had this back. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> My social media is going off like crazy. So I'm like, I've got to turn something off here. Make it go away. Make it go away. You're popular. You're popular. You are popular. <laughs> yes. Leave me alone. 
Wow. Now, <laughs> for so some of some of your novels, you've co-written them, or you've had you've had someone to collaborate with. What's mm-hmm. it like to to write one with someone and then write one on your own? Do you have preferences? Um. I prefer to write them on my own just simply because for novelists, the creative process is just, it's so individual, you know, but I wrote six novels with Linda Evans Shepard and I'm not sure I've ever had so much fun. (laughs) Like we wrote the potluck club series together. And so there was the potluck club. There were three in the potluck club series. And then it was the potluck club catering club or the potluck catering club uh, because they became perfect. All the six women became professional caterers. Um, Linda and I had an absolute blast writing those books. Um, There were times when we had creative differences, but we would look at each other and we'd say, okay, our goal here is to create the best story possible. So let's not, it's not about what I want or what you want. What is the best thing for the story? And sometimes, you know, we went with Linda's idea and sometimes we went with my idea. Um, uh, but when we got to the end of the sixth book, I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm fresh out of ideas <laughs> so mm-hmm. for these six women. Ironically, you know, the first book came out in 2005. Um, I think she and I, this came to us in 2002, I want to say somewhere around 2002. Um, and I, I know it was the year I was traveling extensively. It took, it was eight, we, we created the, the concept. We created the book proposal. It was 18 months before wow. we got a contract. Now we were busy doing other things individually, but finally uh, Baker Ravel uh, contracted us and so in 2005, the book came out and it was such a wild success that they were like, we want two, we want three, we want four. And here we are at 2017, we still get emails on these wow. books. Um, we still get requests to write another book or, you know, um, but Linda is so busy with her ministry and, and I'm busy with mine and she's now writing predominantly nonfiction and doing so extremely well. I'm so proud of the work that God has given her and that she's taken it in that direction. And, and then, you know, I've gone in my direction as well, but Oh my gosh, what fun we had writing those books. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fun to be able to have a partner to bounce ideas off of. You yes, sound like you're a very creative person. I, that's one of my other questions is how, like how many ideas do you go through before deciding on one for a book? Cause I'm sure you get in the mode of brainstorming and like, Oh, we could do this or that. How do you know it's, there's enough there to write a whole book about it. Well, the one true love of Alice Ann, which um, is that, you know, the, my latest book with Tyndale that just released that I was actually working on some of the edits for five brides, which was the book that came before that. And this idea, just not an idea, a title ran through my head as I was working the one true love of Alice Ann. (laughs) And I, I, I ignored it. My brain goes in about 800 different directions at one time anyway. So I ignored it and it came again, the one true love of Alice Ann. And I ignored it. And here it comes the third time. And man, by now you're like, okay, I need to write this down. So I wrote it down and I went back to my edits and it would not leave me alone. So I'm like, okay, put the edits down and flesh this out. So I fleshed it out. I sent it to my accountability partner, my critique partner, what do you think about this? Now that I've got it out of my head, you know, and on paper, I can go back to my edits for Five Brides. And so 
you know, finish working on that. And, and then once all that was done, I could go to this. But periodically, I'll have an idea and I, I write it down and I've got a file that's called um, book ideas. <laughs> I'm so creative. <laughs> it's called book ideas. And, and I, and I, you know, if I flesh them out or not, sometimes it's a title. Um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, a, just a, a, a light sketch. Sometimes it's a little more fleshed out. Throw it in there and um, kind of like spaghetti, you know, what sticks, sticks and what falls to the floor, falls to the floor. Um, but there are, I'm sure that one day when I'm no longer walking this earth, my daughter is going to clean out my desk and she's going <laughs> to, she's going to find all this and say, oh, look at all the ideas that never made it to, you know, to a book. Um, some of them would be great short stories. There's just not enough there for a hundred thousand words, you know, and some are just, they're never going to be their own novel, but somehow they will find their way into another mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, where did the idea for uh, Five Brides come from? Uh, Five Brides is based on a true story. Oh, um, uh, yeah, a friend of mine said, you know, and I get this all the time, oh, I've got this woman, you've got to meet her, you've got to hear her story. I get it all the time. But the woman who said this to me is a very, very dear friend of mine. So I, I listened, and she told me this story about a friend of hers, uh, who has gone on to do great things uh, in the South and in the state, specific, specifically in the state of North Carolina, a uh, very recognized businesswoman. But she came to the United States in 1952 as a 19-year-old with $30 in her pocket, um, a room at the Y, and no job. And she ended up with, with a job, and she met these, this woman at work who said, oh, you know, there's four of us living in this apartment, but there's room for one more. So she went there and they were all five very independent women, which in 1952, that's really saying a lot, living in Chicago. And uh, uh, one Saturday, they all just happened to be off and they went to the movies. And after the movies, they passed by Carson Peary Scott and Company, which is now Target. And uh, they it's, were known. Yeah, It still has <laughs> they, a, that old facade on the front, though. They kept Yes, that. it's gorgeous. Yes. And um, <laughs> they, they were known. Carson's was known in those days for their wedding gowns. And they had a display of a wedding gown. And on a whim, the, the five women who didn't even have a date, much less a boyfriend, went into the... Um, uh, store and they tried on this wedding gown and it fit them all and they came up with this idea if we each put $60 in we can own a Carson's gown and and so these five women even though right after they purchased it they hardly knew each other right after they purchased it they went their their separate ways um, they uh, all five wore that dress now Joan uh, Hunt Zimmerman who lives in Charlotte North Carolina today is the only remaining bride they've all five passed away. I mean, uh, the other four have passed away. Um, when I wrote the book, I interviewed her and Robert, her husband, Robert Zimmerman, who has recently passed away. Uh, so out of all the couples, she is the only survivor at this point. Um, but uh, she, she uh, has, she created and runs an empire called Southern Shows. And uh, it's quite big down here in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say Chicago, our ears perk up because we're about you know 30 miles from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything interesting that you learned through your research about Chicago in the 50s? Um, well, it was quite glamorous, of course. You know, uh, it was post-World War II. 
and the economy in this country was was really beginning to build and soar and so this was a real fun time you know this was a, a time of uh, some of the greats in entertainment um, you know who had gotten America through the war are now you know blossoming and blooming in their own right so you know this was the era of uh, Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and uh, 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 you know, just some of the, you know, Ella and just some of the greats. And so, you know, I and, and fashion was such a big deal. You had to, you know, you have to understand during World War Two, women were giving up their fashion for the war effort. And so now fashion has come back into play. So you had more of the uh, the cinched waistline with these this the beautiful skirts, but then also some of the more A-line skirts. The women wore gloves and they wore hats, and uh, there was just there was music and and there was prosperity really everywhere, and everyone had a chance if you worked hard enough. And uh, so, also though the the world was changing in the way that it saw people who were different than themselves. We were on the cusp of uh, the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and uh, and so that was that's kind of you know an underlying current uh, when Joan ends up in the south in the story in the book Five Brides when she ends up in the south because she's never seen color and she only sees people as people and so when she met Robert's house uh, maid you know the, the the woman who was always there uh, but a, a woman uh, who was uh, you know um, in those days they were called colored you know the uh, colored woman and she was meeting the family she hugged this woman and her future father-in-law do not hug the coloreds you know and she looked at him and she said well I do and so they knew right then this was a very strong-willed woman and I just admire that spunk in her so that, I think that's one of the things people love about five brides is these are five very spunky women in an era uh, when women finally could be spunky because what had happened was during World War II when they had to go to work outside of their homes they had to keep the factories running and they were building the bombs and things like that and they were learning how to cook uh, without sugar and flour and you know all the necessities um, they they became uh, stronger individuals, and so this was a great era for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I wish we could go back to wearing, yeah. you know, pretty pretty dresses and gloves and hats when we go out. <laughs> you could. Some people. Some people do that. Yeah. Um, it it seems like, at least in your two Tyndale books, that uh, one of the themes is women who take matters into their own hands. Yeah. Is that yeah. kind of who you are, and that comes out in your writing, or do oh, you just enjoy that? You just enjoy writing those characters. I, I do enjoy writing those characters, but it is who I am. And I think a lot of it is because I, I had to take matters into my own hands at several, you know, several points in my life. And, and, and I did. And uh, um, I survived um, for a long time. You know, someone said, well, what is your mantra? It was like roll with the punches, you know, but you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can't sit around wallowing in your own grief. I don't wallow in my own grief. I don't allow that. Um, it doesn't mean I don't have things to wallow in my own grief about. I do, but there's work to be done. And, uh, you know, I was doing an interview a couple of days ago, and, and the interviewer said, how do you get everything done in a day that you do? Because I do a lot. Um, and, and mainly it's I refuse to waste a single minute of my of my time. I find it very difficult just to sit down. Um, and, and every so often when my life kind of, you know, hits a calmer uh, pace, I do enjoy that. And I'm, I'm in it right now, which is very nice. But I, I can see 
like a couple of weeks down the road and it's going to become frenzied again. Uh, but I love that as well. So, you know, um, but I think for the, the truth of it is like in the one true love of Alice Ann, uh, this is written about World War II. And it was based on a, a story that years ago, my husband and I went to see our elderly neighbors and they told us their story, their love story of, of World War II. And he was shot down in the Pacific and everyone thought he was dead. And it was months and months and months before they found out that he was alive. And I, and, and that story just kind of, whenever I went, you know, whenever I said, okay, let me just see if I can't throw something out on paper here. That story jumped into my, my memory. And I hadn't thought about this, I don't know, in a decade, but I, I started saying, well, what if, what if they hadn't been married? Now they had just gotten married. But when she heard that he was dead, she moved back in with her parents on her parents' farm. What if they hadn't been married? But what if in her heart, in her mind, he was her one true love? And then she gets this news that he's been shot down in the Pacific. What do you do with that when you've been carrying this secret for five years of your life? And actually, by this point, seven years of your life that, you know, my heart belongs to this man. And I just know that one day he's going to wake up and see that I'm not a little girl anymore. And of course, then during that wartime, she stops being a little girl. Uh, young women who were on the cusp of adulthood uh, became adults very quickly once we once the United States entered the war. So when I interviewed some of my aunts and uncles, uh, et cetera, who were teenagers in that era and listened to them talk about how suddenly childhood ceased the way it had been. It wasn't that, no, and no one was complaining really, you know, I mean, sure, it was tough, but no one was saying, oh, woe is me, you know, they were like, okay, what needs to be done? Let's do it. And when I saw that, I said, okay, so let's take this carefree girl um, who is just, you know, turning 16 on December 7th, 1941, <laughs> and thinks she has her whole life ahead of her. And the most important thing in the world is this young man who is her brother's best friend, five years older than her. Um, and, you know, just being silly and girlish with her, with her two best friends. And, uh, you know, the most important thing in the world right then is, you know, maybe passing your math exam and what's playing at the theater, you know, and uh, um, and, and and being like she says, she says to her sister-in-law, what's the name of that new guy that's everybody's talking about that singer out of Hollywood? And she says, Frank, somebody. And her sister-in-law says Sinatra, you know, so I mean, they're all about Hollywood, you know, in that era. And um, uh, she she's going to have her birthday party. On December 7th, 1941, and about 2.30 in the afternoon, the news cuts into uh, a football game or a baseball game. I think it was a football game. I actually have the recording uh, of what it sounded like. And um, the world changed right then. And you no longer can see the stars in the sky because there's a, there's a cloud over them. But the sky is still there and the stars are still there. So you gotta you got to press on. And uh, these young people were taking on adult jobs to for this country to survive. I question whether or not our young people could do that today. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at everything that Americans gave up during that era so that we could survive the war, you know, we were we were like our army was 17th in the in the world. We were a poor excuse for an army. 
most uh, American men who were either drafted or signed up um, when the United States entered World War, World War II had never held a gun, never held a gun. So they had to be taught that. Now, when, when you say that in the South, most people are like, what? They never held a gun, you know, because Southern boys are given their first gun when they're six, you know. <laughs> so what do you mean they never held a gun? Uh, but, but see, the you know, predominantly uh, Americans didn't know how to shoot a gun. And so all of that had to be taught. And again, I, I had the pleasure of looking at some uh, old video of uh, United States Army sergeants, you know, training these young men, and they were just so clumsy. Um, and, and, and when you think about them, we became one of the greatest uh, militaries in the world. Um, that's, that's pretty impressive. But mm -hmm. somebody had to be running things back home. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the women and the young people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's incredible to see that through all of your books and then to look at, you know, upcoming in next year, 2018, we have the final race coming out. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just give a little preview for our listeners of what that book is about, because that's a little bit different than what you've written it before. Is. Yeah, it is. I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, you know, I have to go back and give you a little history. Uh, I had never heard of Eric Little. Uh, who was a 1924 gold medalist uh, from Scotland, the Flying Scotsman, they called him. Uh, I'd never heard of him until 1981. I received a phone call. I had just had a baby. I was homebound, you know, and kind of going stir crazy. I was at that point. And uh, I had gotten a call from my pastor. He said, uh, there's a movie that is being released in the United States, was filmed in, in Britain, and it has a faith theme and they're playing it at select theaters and they're asking for people to come in and watch the movie and then fill out a questionnaire and I've got two free tickets for you and Dennis if my husband if you would like to go see this movie I'm telling you I would have gone to see you know the slaughtering of pigs at that point yeah. I was so ready to get out of the house it was like sure no problem and uh, so we went to see uh, chariots of fire and that's when I, I heard the story of Eric Little. Now, I've always been a researcher at heart. I was, I was not, uh, you know, writing at this point. I was, uh, I was a nurse and I'd taken some time off, you know, to, I didn't want to go back to work until she went into a little preschool. Um, but, uh, I went to the library. You know, we had something back in those days called encyclopedias and I was reading up on this man, uh, and, and who he was. And then, of course, you know, just kind of forgot about it. But uh, and then over the years, you know, I would hear something about chariots of fire or you would hear the theme song, you know, that kind of thing. So you, you would remember uh, the, the movie. And then years later, when I entered the world of publishing and it was I was at my first uh, uh, Christian um, Booksellers Association, you know, convention that we used to call it CBA. It's now called ICRS. And uh, I saw this book on Eric Little, you know, and it was under, it was at Barber Publishing and it was under uh, Men and Women of Faith. You know, they had this whole series. And I said, oh, yeah, that's that guy who ran in that race. And that's, that was pretty much it. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was introduced to a man named Eric Eichinger. Reverend Eric Eichinger, I call him the right reverend, and uh, he was working on a screenplay uh, and a novelization on the life of Eric Little, who had greatly 
um, influenced his own life. He had become a runner after seeing Chariots of Fire. Now, Eric is, is young enough. He could he could be my son. I mean, he's, you know, much younger. So he was like, I was an adult with a baby and he was like a seven-year-old when he was watching, uh, when he was watching Chariots of Fire for the first time. Um, but uh, he became a runner. He became a missionary in China. He married a girl that he met in China. And he, so a, a lot of this was is pretty much like the, the Eric Little story. But he had also had the opportunity to go to the memorial where, uh, you know, that's erected in, in Eric Little's memory in China and uh, in, in the Weishen camp where he passed away, uh, which was a Japanese internment camp. Um, and he had also had the opportunity to go to Edinburgh where uh, Eric Little grew up basically and to meet Eric Little's children, his three daughters. Uh, so, uh, but he, he was, he was not by and large a novelist or a writer, you know, he knew the facts and he's brilliant with the facts, uh, but he needed an editor. And so I had this opportunity to work with him on this novelization, which just kind of sparked my desire to get to know more about Eric Little again. And, and about what he did and why his life was so important and why 93 years and one day <laughs> after he ran that race, um, we are still talking about him. You know, what what was it about this very humble man that we're still talking about? Mm -hmm. And uh, then um, uh, the book was the novelization was presented to an editor at Tyndale who said, um, I don't think we're ready for the novelization yet, but I do think what we're ready for is another bio, but we want it to be slightly different. We want it to have a little bit of, um, of a, a fictional feel to it. We're not really sure what that means. We need to hash that out. Uh, and John Farrar, who was the editor, said um, uh, to my agent, uh, you know, we'd like to talk to Eva Marie Everson about this. And so they brought me in, not knowing that I already knew Eric. Um, had no idea. Wow. So so that was, you know, that was kind of a God thing as far as yeah. we were concerned. So wow. what we ended up with and what we're so proud of is that, uh, you know, part of what I did was I, I took Eric's uh, Eric Eichinger's work and uh, made it a little less passive, which was our joke. I'm like, if you use the word was one more time, I'm coming <laughs> over there, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, there are times when you have to use the word was. So, um, but uh, we, we just worked together so well on this. And so I edited and, and then there were things like, you know, little rabbit trails that we cut and okay, that's not important to the story. So we cut. Um, but then also what I did was I took whatever was we were looking at in the beginning of, or in the, within that chapter. And at the beginning of the chapter, I fictionalized it, and and so I wrote it as though it, it were a work of fiction, and then you ease into the actual biography, and uh, we were not really sure how that was going to look. It has not ever been done before when it comes to the story of Eric Little. As many times as his biography has been written, that's never been done, uh, but at the end of it, Eric and I, we are so proud, and uh, John is very proud, and um, our, our content editor, uh, whose name is Jonathan, uh, is it, he was, you know, over the moon about it, so we are, are, are triple excited, because everybody on your end is excited about it, which means, you know, job well done on our end, um, but also, I'm, I'm so excited for Eric, for Eric uh, Eichinger, um, because uh, this is his first book, and I think it's it's just going to be, I think it's going to be very successful um, because writing it changed my life. 
truly changed my life. I hope and I believe that for those who read it, it will change their lives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I really believe that with all my heart. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I'm excited to read it. I remember watching it for the first time, and Adam and I were just talking about some of our favorite moments from the movie, the, yeah. the scenes that we remember. So yeah. it's going to be exciting. And It is, yeah. Eva, we're about at the end of our time. I'm wondering if our listeners want to get to know you a little bit more, learn about you um, and your ministries. Where should they go? Well, I'll tell you where they should go and where they should not go. They should go to evamarieeversonauthor.com. They should not go to evamarieeverson.com. That is a name squatter. And I'm having to take legal measures to (laughs) unsquat this person. So um, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, I am not evamariaeverson.com. Uh, I am not a writer, journalist, political activist, at least not publicly. Uh, but uh, that is not me. And in fact, my, my neighbor and I walk together every evening and, and uh, she, she said to me, I didn't know you just bought new bedroom furniture. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I went and she was like, it's on your blog. I'm like, I don't blog about bedroom furniture. <laughs> so I, and then I went and checked the, you know, this other person and sure enough, they had just bought me bedroom furniture. So, um, I'm Eva Marie Everson author.com. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. And then, uh, our listeners can find your books on tindale.com and they can be on the lookout for the final race next spring. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. I'm so excited. Yes. I really am. Yeah. Well, thank you, Eva Marie. You. We really appreciate thank your you. time. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye. Bye.